Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies our years with good things. Because the Lord is compassionate, He is gracious, He's slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. He'll not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us as our iniquities deserve. Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Father, may we think our thoughts after Your thoughts. You're mindful that we're but dust. But sometimes we have a different estimation of ourselves. You have created us. We are the sheep of Your pasture. Thank you that you've not rewarded us as our sins deserve, for they deserve. Your word teaches nothing but death, wrath. But in your mercy, through Messiah's substitutionary work, you've provided a way of escape for all those who will call upon him in faith. Thank you that when we receive your forgiveness, as far as the east is from the west, infinitely apart, You've removed our sin from us. You said you remember it no more. You don't hold it against us any longer. How grateful we are to be crowned with loving kindness, to be reckoned as righteous in your sights on the merits of the cross. We thank you that you have good news, not to hide but to share. And may we in this new week be your laborers to go into the harvest and to tell people of one who loves them, who cares about them, who can give them real meaning in life and the forgiveness that their sin deserves if they will come to Christ. Help us this week to be your agents, your ambassadors effectively. We pray for these missionaries who are coming all across the world to join us. Some are en route today, tomorrow, the next day. Please give them safety. We pray as they come that they would be a great blessing to us, that they would challenge our hearts, but we also pray that we would be a blessing to them, that they would come and find great refreshment and encouragement. We thank you for Luis Palau, who has preached the gospel to 30 million people. Thank you for his incredible ministry with Billy Graham. And we ask, oh God, that as he speaks on this platform Friday night, that you would give me and each one here someone that we can bring. We pray that our hearts would be challenged and those who have never met you, that they would find Jesus. Now we come humbly this morning asking you to bless our study in the Word of God. We pray the Spirit of God, the one whom you gave us as our teacher, that he would help us, that he would illumine the truth that is here, that we would be more than those who just hear, but those who apply. Please help me, Father, because in myself I am bankrupt and weak. Without you I can do nothing, but with you everything can happen. And I pray that you would come and help me and fill me and use me and speak through me into my own heart as I minister your word to your people. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. Will you take the word of God and turn to Daniel chapter 2 this morning? 
If you're new to the Bible, just find the book of Psalms, which is about dead center. And then if you scan to the left, you will soon come to Ezekiel. And right after Ezekiel, you will come to the prophet Daniel. He's an amazing man. He's a man who will teach us how to walk with God in the midst of a difficult time frame. He's a man who stands strong spiritually, morally, ethically in a society that becomes more and more pagan. His day is a lot about our day. And so how appropriate it is that we are studying him because he's the prophet of the end time, of the latter time. But he's also the prophet of the meantime. He's going to teach us how we can be victorious. And of course, he's a unique individual, unlike many of his forefathers, unlike Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David. There's not a single word of criticism that is ever spoken against this prophet. He is in a league with Joseph, Joshua, Samuel, and Nehemiah. He's an amazing man. But he's also going to help us to understand Bible prophecy. He is the key in many ways to most of the prophetic literature in the Bible because he will reveal things that neither Ezekiel or John in the Revelation or anyone else will reveal. In fact, God tells him that he is to seal up his prophecy for the latter time. John is told when he writes centuries later that he is to unfold the prophecy. He is to reveal it. And that, of course, is what the word revelation means. It's an unfolding. And so Daniel gives us the ABCs. Revelation gives us the XYZ and the two interface together. And because John has unfolded his revelation, now Daniel fits like a key in a lock in understanding the revelation. You will not be able to understand one without the other. Now, if you understand the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details will take on much more meaning. So as you can see here on this chart last week, I gave you an overview of the book. The first six chapters deal with Daniel and his personal friends, whereas chapters 7 through 12 deal with Daniel and his people's future. Uh, 1 through 6 is largely historical. There's a little bit of prophecy that's in there that we're going to examine in our next time together. 7 through 12 is prophetical, and there's a little bit of history that is in there. Now, I gave you the historical background that is really important if you're going to understand any test, Old Testament prophet. And what time in human history did they write? And if you weren't here, you might want to go online or get a tape and, and listen to it because it will really open up the book of Daniel. But just briefly, if you remember in 605 BC, a general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar came to take over the city of Jerusalem. He puts it under siege. And while the city is under siege, he discovers that his father, King Nabopolassar, dies. So he has to rush back to Babylon to retake the throne as the heir to the throne. But before he does that, he appoints a vassal king there in the city of Jerusalem, and he also takes a number of hostages for security. And some of those hostages that are taken are Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and who else? Mishael, all right? We know them so good by their pagan names, right? But we need to know them by their Jewish names because their Jewish names are rich in meaning. And so he goes back and he takes these three men with him 
And of course, we're going to read what is happening during this historical time frame in chapters 1 through 6. You have a chart here, and there are six key historical events that are listed. We're going to meet Daniel. We did last week as a youth. The Hebrew word that is used means he's somewhere around 15 to 18 years of age. He's just a young teenager. And of course, when Nebuchadnezzar takes hostages, he goes to the royal family. These are princes of sorts. He goes for the best of the best, and out of the best of the best, these guys surface of the very best. And of course, we see them in chapter 1, where they are taken away as teenagers. In chapter 2, the second historical event concerns Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The third event deals with his three friends who are in the fiery furnace. In the fourth chapter, we will study the historical setting concerning Nebuchadnezzar's pride. In the fifth chapter, we will witness the fall of Babylon and fulfillment of prophecy. And in the sixth chapter, when, Abraham, when uh, Daniel is an old man, around 80 to 85 years of age, we will see him in the lion's den. So there's large time gaps in the course of these six chapters, but enough is written about Daniel's life so that we know that he was a man of consistency. Of course, when you come to the seventh chapter, you are alerted that you are coming into a new section of the book, and you immediately notice it. And what might be helpful to you if you've not done this is just to sit down and in one sitting read through all 12 chapters. Now, if you have 14 chapters in the book of Daniel, I'll deal with that later. There's not 14 chapters as in the Roman Catholic Bible. There's 12. But they took a couple of books that were written between the Old and the New Testament during that 400-year period when there was no prophet in Israel, and they made them the 13th and 14th chapter in the Catholic Bible. But there are 12 chapters, so if you have a Bible with 14 chapters, let me help you, and we'll get you on with 12, okay? Because I don't want you to get confused. But read through it in one sitting, and as you do that, you'll see there's a change when you come to the 7th chapter. In chapters 1 through 6, it's in the third person. But when you come to the seventh chapter, it's in the first person. And I also noted last time that next to the book of Genesis, the book of Daniel is the most attacked book in all of the Holy Scripture, really for two reasons. Number one, because of the miraculous that is in the book, and the fallen, unregenerate mind wants to deny miracles. They just can't accept them. So when you meet some preacher and you ask him, Genesis 1 through 11, did it actually happen? He says, no, it's, it's just a, a parable to teach us spiritual truth. You know you're talking to an unbeliever. You know you're talking to a man who has difficulty accepting the miraculous. Why? Because a natural mind can come to the point where he just doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. And what is plain and clear, he denies. Why? Because if it's not true, then God is not God. And if God is not God, then he's not accountable to anyone. The other thing that they attack all the way through Daniel, and the reason they love to hate this book, is because of the prophetic nature of it. Some of the most specific prophecies in all of the Word of God are found in the prophet Daniel. They are so precise, so clear, so accurate, that the critics say, well, the book was written just a few centuries before Jesus came to the earth. That Daniel didn't write it, that what we find here is a historical record, but not a prophecy. Well, Jesus said he was not Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. And I go with Jesus. In either case, we will see that even the way they date the book 
in the second century BC, they missed some critical prophecies that were even fulfilled between the second century BC and the coming of the Messiah, Jesus himself. So it's an absolutely incredible book. Now, when we come to the second chapter, this is the longest chapter in the whole book of Daniel. And we're going to cover it in two messages. First, we're going to deal with the dream and its consequences. And then when we come together next time, and you don't want to miss next time, if you think today is going to be exciting, wait till we come to next time. He's going to deal with the dream and its contents and its meaning. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I do want to read the first 13 verses to give us a feel for where we are going. Follow along. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation." The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling places is not with mortal flesh. On April the 14th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln called together his cabinet, all his advisors, to develop a plan to reconstruct the union of the states. And during that morning meeting, he told his advisors of a troublesome dream that he had had several nights in a row. And in the dream, he boards this vessel that is going to an indefinite place. And he talked about the dream, and he asked his advisors what they thought because it bothered him so much, and they had no answer for him. Of course, before the day was over, he went to Ford's Theater, and John Wilkes Booth shot the President of the United States, and he found himself in eternity. Now, many believe in hindsight that the vessel was his life, and the indefinite place was eternity. Now, I don't know if that dream was from God or not, but wouldn't it have been neat if someone could have come in and told the president what his dream meant? Well, if he had lived 24 centuries before, there was such a man, and of course, his name was Daniel. Notice how the chapter opens. 
Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. In the opening verse of chapter 1 and now in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is identified as the king of Babylon. And more is said in the Old Testament about this pagan king than of any other pagan king in all of the Bible. He is a wicked, despotic king. He plucked out the eyes of King Zedekiah right after he ruthlessly murdered his sons in front of his own sight. Daniel 5, when Daniel looks back on Nebuchadnezzar and summarizes his life, he says this in the 19th verse, because of the grandeur which he, God, bestowed on him, that is Nebuchadnezzar, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is very important because he is the very first king in biblical history, this first pagan king, to interrupt a theocracy that God had had with Israel. God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world, not only to bring the first coming of Messiah, but as we will see, God is setting the stage through the Jewish people to bring about the second coming of the Messiah. And so God ruled over Israel in a theocracy of sorts. But that theocracy is interrupted through this king in a time frame in human history that Jesus refers to as the time of the Gentiles begins. And it begins with Nebuchadnezzar, and it goes all the way through the coming Antichrist. We're going to learn about the Antichrist. In fact, more is said about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel. You will learn more about the Antichrist in this book than any other book in all of the Bible. It's absolutely astounding what he is going to show us. Now, Nebuchadnezzar interrupts this uh, kingdom relationship that God has with the Jewish people, not because he chooses to, but because God wants to use him. Jeremiah, the prophet who lived before this king, described Nebuchadnezzar as God's servant, as his servant. Not because he was a believer, but because he was a tool in the hand of a sovereign God. So Jeremiah foretold what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do, and he gave specific detail. And of course, he's the Hitler of his age. He's one of the most hated despots who has ever lived. And he, of course, thought he was building a magnificent kingdom for himself. But in reality, he was, a building, he was building a school in which God would train his people for 70 years and rebuke them and discipline them and prepare them ultimately to come back into the land. So again, though the exact number of years of the time of the Gentiles is not specified, the events where it begins and where it ends is given to us here in the prophet Daniel. And we are going to be blown away before we are done with the prophet Daniel because prophecy is being fulfilled in our day, in our lifetime, and God is setting the stage for us to see that the time frame concerning the time of the Gentiles that this prophet wrote about is soon coming to a conclusion. Now today, again, we're going to deal with the dream and its consequences, and we want to study it under three headings. If you're using your note-taking outline, first we want to think about the king and his distress. And verse 1 opens describing the king's disturbance, his distress. Uh, Look at verse 1 as we think about his disturbance. We're told now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, the immediate context 
gives us some very important chronological information. We're told that this event took place in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, don't let the chapter and verse divisions distract you. They're helpful and that I said turn to Daniel 2 and you could find it. But they are distracting and that they are artificial. They're added almost a thousand years before the Bible, um, after the Bible was completed. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 18. You should bring a Bible because I won't put everything on a slide. We read there, then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them, Daniel and his three friends, before Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, they had been in a three-year school, and at the end of the three years, these guys are the cream of the crop. They surface to the very top. Then if you remember, verse 19 of chapter 1 tells us, the king talked with them, and out of them all, uh, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. So the events of chapter 2 follow the graduation of chapter 1. And yet chapter 2 opens with the words, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at first glance, if you read that, it seems a little confusing. And the critics love to attack the book of Daniel in every aspect, whether it's the miraculous, the prophetic, or the historical. And they'd say, well, this is obviously an error in the Bible because these guys have just finished three years of school. They start when the king starts, and yet we're told this is the second year of his reign. So how do you put that together? They say it's an error. Well, there are no errors in the Bible. Jesus said that God inspired not just the thoughts, but the words, and not just the words, but the tenses of the words, and not just the tenses of the words, but the very letters themselves. That's the degree of inspiration that Jesus Christ believed in when he approached the Scripture. And of course, it's important in our day to define terms because you will meet a lot of pastors who say, I believe the Bible is inspired, but they may mean a host of things from that. They may mean it's inspired like Shakespeare was. Or they may even say, in our day, the Bible was inerrant, but they don't mean the same thing that historical Christianity meant when, they, when we use the word inerrant or without error. They say, well, the Bible's without error in its ability to help you, but not in necessarily every single detail in historical uh, event that it records or every scientific remark that it makes. No, it's inerrant in every single word. Well, about 50 years ago, the critics were discredited because some archaeologists dug up some Babylonian tablets and they discovered that the Babylonians did not reckon a king in the first year of his reign. They called the first year of his reign the year of Babylonian accession. So we learn from their records that it wasn't until the second year that they called that the first year. So think this through for just a moment. Nebuchadnezzar comes. He takes the place of his father, Nabopolassar, in the year of succession, Daniel and his three friends are in school. In the first year of his reign, they're completing their second year. 
And in the second year of his reign, they are completed in the third year. So the two fit together perfectly. And of course, that silenced the critics on this issue. They know, well, you can't argue with the tablets that we've read. So they always have their little criticisms. I'll look at most of them. If I looked at all of them, though there is an answer for every single one, we'd never finish the book of Daniel. Now, in addition to the chronology beyond that, I want you to see the nature of the dream. It's recurring. It happens over and over and over and over again. And this man, before the whole world trembled, he trembles because of this dream that he has. And like so many other kings and world leaders, they go to bed at night wondering what their future holds for their country. That's why when you drop down to verse 29, Daniel will say to him, as for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. But this dream about the future is incredibly troubling to him. He can't make heads or tails of it. And while we're here, let me just say parenthetically that there's nothing wrong about thinking and planning for the future. We would be wise to think about the future. People are foolish who ignore the past, who don't learn from it, and people are just as foolish if they don't plan for the future. God does not speak against planning for the future. What he does speak against is worrying about the future. Jesus said, therefore, do not be worried for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That doesn't mean that we discount the future, but we don't live with tomorrow's sorrow. We live one day at a time, and God's grace is sufficient for us today. And some of us are living on borrowed trouble, and a lot of the things you're worrying about aren't even going to happen. And we need to look to God today. That doesn't discount that we plan the future. And so here's this king. And he's troubled and he can't sleep. And some of us go to bed at night and we can't sleep because we're worried about tomorrow. And we need, as believers, to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. That's a command in Scripture in First Peter. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so notice, though, that this is not multiple dreams, but one dream. How do we know that? Well, in verse three, it's in the plural. In verse one, it's in the plural. And in verse two, it's in the plural. But in verse three, it's in the singular. Follow closely. Don't miss that detail. In the first verse, it says Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Circle the letter S at the end of the word dream. In verse two, he calls in the experts of the kingdom. He gave orders to call in all these different groups and he asked them to tell the king his dreams. Circle the word letter S again. But then when you come to verse three, will you notice? The king said to them, I had a dream, singular, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream, articular. So the plural tells you it's a dream that he has over and over and over again. The singular tells you, and the article in front of the dream tells you it's the same dream that he has. And it creates this insomnia. It disturbs him at night. And a lot of leaders who have reached the top, they think, well, the only way to go now is down, and he's, he's torn up. He has a nightmare. The Bible says here, the sleep left him. You ever have a dream like that? You wake up out of a stir, out of a horrible nightmare, and you're wide awake? That's what happens to this king. Now, according to the Word of God, in the Old Testament era, God spoke in a number of different ways. Sometimes God would come upon a prophet, and just give him an anointing, and he would say, in essence, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes God would speak through dreams and visions. And we've already been told in chapter 1 and verse 17 
that Daniel had visions and dreams, that even Daniel understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Now, it's important when you think about visions and dreams that you put them within the biblical context. Moses said in the book of Numbers, as it's called in our Bible, Numbers chapter 12, Bednidbar in the Hebrew Bible. We get our titles of the various books of the Bible from the Greek translation. The Jews in the first five books, they use it from the most important word and the opening sentence of each book. But in Numbers 12, Moses said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. So God speaks in both visions and dreams. And if you study the Bible very carefully, you will see there is a distinction between a vision and a dream. A dream was done at night when you were asleep, where God gave you revelation, whereas a vision was done while you were awake, either, at not, either during the night or during the daytime. But you were awake, but it was like you were having a dream, and God gave a revelation. And there's a number of people who have dreams and visions in the Bible. Joseph, of course, we studied him in Genesis. Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of the twelve. Remember the, the, the dreams he had? Uh, Joseph, the uh, stepfather of the Lord Jesus, married to, to Mary. He had dreams. As did Solomon, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, Peter. They had visions and dreams. But what's more interesting sometimes is to realize that sometimes God gave a vision and a dream, not just to a man of God, but sometimes to an outright pagan. Abraham had an encounter with a king by the name of Abimelech, and Abimelech had a dream, and in that dream, God revealed to him that Sarah was not his sister, but his wife. In this case, God gives a dream to this man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, but God doesn't give him the interpretation and the meaning of the dream. Now, I know if I don't answer this, when I go out the door, I'll have a dozen questions or you'll write me this week, so let me address it. Because I know some of you are thinking as I speak, does God give visions and dreams today? Well, it might be, I think, healthy to say that as a general rule, if you think God gave you a dream, that he gave you some inspiration, more than likely it was not an inspiration but indigestion. But with that said... I do believe that in the general possibility, God can give a vision or a dream. Now, people abuse this in our day, and one of the verses they love to run with is Acts chapter 2, where Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he quotes the prophet Joel. And there we read, and it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, Peter links this to the last days. And so there are all these guys going around today saying, we're in the last days, and God said he'd give dreams and visions, and I want to tell you what he gave me. Well, number one, when did the last days begin? Well, in Peter's mind, it began on the day of Pentecost. These people had just done something miraculous. They spoke in a language, a real verifiable tongue, and a dialect within that tongue that they had never known before. And it was so astounding, the skeptics, like the skeptics in our day, want to write off the miraculous, and they say, well, they must be drunk. And Peter knows, says, what you've just witnessed is exactly what God said would happen in the last days. 
And he quotes the text I just read from the prophet Joel. Biblically speaking, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. It goes all the way through the second coming of Christ. There's another term that's used in Scripture called the latter days. Daniel's going to use that term even this morning. The New Testament also uses it. And that refers, in essence, to the last of the last days. But know this, that we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. And two, if you read the whole quotation that Peter gave, he goes on to speak of the fact that the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn blood red during the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so he takes the last days all the way from the day of Pentecost through the time just before Jesus comes and there's great miracles that happen in the sky. And by the way, some have asked me about the four blood moons. It's a lot of nonsense. It will sell books, it will fill auditoriums, but it is sheer nonsense. If uh, this four blood moon phenomena was something that was taught in Scripture, don't you think in the course of 2,000 years that God's men and women would have seen it before? Look, as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. The moon turning blood red that God speaks of is beyond what we see when you have a certain kind of eclipse. He's talking about literally even the stars falling from the heavens. And he's talking about a day, the great and terrible day of the Lord that precedes the second coming. has nothing to do with the blood moons that we're seeing in our day and that they've seen throughout history. And they love to manipulate the four blood moons to say, well, look what happened when this happened. They're manipulating it. I've gone back and I've studied their chronology and it's really pretty poor, but people don't think for themselves today, which is kind of sad. But can God still speak in a dream and a vision? Sure he can. Maybe you're asking, has he ever spoken to you? No, he has not. Could he? He could speak to anyone. God can do whatever he wants to do. But let me just say, there are certainly places in the world where there is little preaching of the Bible and little specific revelation there's general revelation wherever you go, found in creation and conscience. But in some places of the world, they've never seen a Bible. They've never heard the name of Jesus. And God sometimes can give a vision or a dream in order to bring the person under the call of the gospel. Uh, but let me say, when God does give a vision or a dream, it is, number one, never going to contradict what he has revealed in his word. God's will never contradicts God's word. And if you have a vision or a dream that is extracurricular, that goes beyond the revelation of Scripture or subtracts from the word of God, then you've come under the warning that the book of Revelation closes with. And you don't want to do that. I would also say that God never, ever, ever commands us to seek a dream or a vision. But he does command us to seek to study the Word of God. And he does tell us on occasion we should seek the counsel of other wise people to discern his will for our life. Uh, I have a friend who worked with the Jesus Film Ministry. And he worked in India, and he met some people, and they said, well, how'd you hear about our showing of the Jesus Film? And they said, well, three days ago, God gave us a vision to come to this village. And we've walked for three days. And they walked for three days, and they heard the gospel. Notice they didn't get the gospel in the dream. God uses human agents to communicate the gospel. 
That's why we're called to go into every nation of the world and to preach the gospel. God gave Cornelius a, 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 an, an encounter with an angel, and he gave Peter a dream, and he brought the two together so that he could hear the gospel, but God still used a human agent. Another missionary speaks, true story. His car breaks down, and a man walks up to him, and he asks him the question. He said, are you God's messenger? He said, well, what do you mean? He said, God gave me a dream last night that I would meet a man in this place with a broken down car, and I want to know if you're God's messenger. He said, well, I guess I am. He said, well, would you come to my village and tell us and speak to us about your message? And he went to their village and he gave them the gospel and they say the entire village was converted to Jesus Christ. God can do whatever he wants to do. But what he does is not like the nonsense we've seen here in the last month, this so-called evangelist who uh, has had this vision from God where he said between September 23rd and 28th, a comet is going to, an asteroid is going to crash into Puerto Rico. It's going to create tsunamis that are going to cover the entire eastern seaboard deep in water. The 28th, that's tomorrow, right, Anthony? This could be my last sermon, brother. <laughs> that's nonsense. That's folly. And so there's a lot of abuse. And so Ezekiel warns us of false dreams and lying divinations. A lot of these people, again, they're either trying to make money or they just like to think they are so spiritual. Let me tell you about my experience. And somehow on their low self-esteem, because they don't have a biblical self-image that comes from the Word of God, they have to build up their self-image by making themselves to be some kind of a big shot. Ezekiel warned of false dreams and lying divinations. The Apostle John commands us in the New Testament not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to see where they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone into the world. So keep your attention where God calls you to keep it, on the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, Jesus himself gave a similar warning. Remember that man, the rich man who dies and he goes to hell? And he says, oh, please, I've got five brothers Go and warn them lest they also come to this horrible place of torment. Please uh, have someone rise from the dead and then they will believe. And Jesus said, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, if they will not believe the Word of God, neither would they believe if someone was raised from the dead. And a short time later, he did literally, about 10 days before he died on Golgotha, he raised the man by the name of Lazarus from the dead. Many believed, but many hardened their hearts and sought to disprove what they could not deny. And so there's the king's disturbance. Secondly, think about the king's demand. We read here in verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king of his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now, this is not some casual request. He's really upset, and he's got good reason. 
So he calls in these four categories of experts. First, the magicians. They're the diviners. They use charts and magic to try to answer people's questions about the future. The second Hebrew word is translated here, conjurers or astrologers in the King James. These are guys who uttered spells and they would conjure up revelations to tell the future. Then there's the sorcerers. They use necromancy. That is, they try to communicate with the dead to try to figure out the future. And then there's this special elite class called the Chaldeans. They are the wise of the wise men. By the way, don't confuse them with the general use of the term Chaldean. The term Chaldean is used in a broad sense to describe all those people who live in this realm called Babylonia or Chaldea. So it's not being used like a South Carolinians. It's being used in a technical sense in this chapter, which is obvious from the context. A special class, the wise of the wise men. And we're told specifically here in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar calls in these four groups to tell the king his dreams. He did not tell his dream, but he expected them to recount the dream and then to interpret the dream using their magical powers. Now that's the king's distress. Secondly, we want to think about the scholars in their dilemma. The scholars in their dilemma. We read here in verse 4, it opens, Then the Chaldeans, these wise men, spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, if you have the NASB in front of you, you'll see a little note there next to the word, the little number one, you see it there next to the word Aramaic. And if you go out into the margin, it gives you a little marginal note. Do you see the marginal note out there? It says from here in verse 4, all the way through chapter 7 and verse 28, that's the end of chapter 7, the text goes from Hebrew into Aramaic. Now understand, God inspired the Bible in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Almost the entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Almost the entire New Testament is written in Greek, with the exception of a couple verses like Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Most of you know that, that's Aramaic. But the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but these chapters, beginning in 2 all the way through the end of 7, and in like vein, in Ezra 4 through 7, and one word in Jeremiah, one verse in Jeremiah is written in Aramaic, and for a reason. For instance, in Ezra 4 through 7, it's in Aramaic. Why? Because he's dealing with trade, international information. And the trade language of the day was Aramaic. Like a hundred years ago, the international language in the world was French. What's the international language today? English, thank God for us in our day. But in that day, it was Aramaic. And of course, that's the language the Lord Jesus spoke. And that's the language a lot of the Jews spoke. Why? Because they're transported to Babylon. They're there for 70 years and they learn Aramaic. Now, Jesus also knew Hebrew, though the Bible doesn't tell us. I suspect he also knew Greek, the lingua franca of that, of the empire. Paul knew all three languages, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord Jesus did as well. But in this chapter, all the way through chapter 7, there's a different reason. Notice so here on this chart, here's the breakdown of the book. Again, the first chapter, all the way through chapter 2 and verse 4, that deals with Daniel's personal history. It's in Hebrew. From the middle of verse 4 all the way through the end of chapter 7, it is in Aramaic. And again, it's a sister language to Hebrew. They're very similar, just like Ukrainian and Russian are very similar. They're different languages. But at the Tower of Babel, where the languages developed and all the races came because people married within their language group, we have a reason for the races in the world. The pagan world does not. 
People like Hitler said, well, you know, black people and Jewish people and other people, they were, you know, genetic mutations. God gave a reason for the races. And really, the technical term is not races, but nations. Because there's one race of people, we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, but there are different nations where people married within their language group, and within that language group, certain uh, physical features, when given enough time, would begin to develop. And so, um, Aramaic is a sister language of Hebrew. And this is important in this section. Why? Because typically in the Bible, God either tells history or He tells the future through the lens of the nation Israel. But here in the prophet Daniel, He is going to tell the future through the Gentile nations of the world. God is going to show us how all these various Gentile nations, all the way to the time of this coming ruler called Antichrist, are going to have a part in unfolding the future for God. All right, so do you follow that? It's not that complicated. Now, I didn't learn Aramaic. In, in seminary, they taught us Hebrew and they taught us Greek. And 99.999% of the Bible is in those languages, so I didn't learn Aramaic. But um, nonetheless, the comments that I will make, I think, will be accurate concerning the language. Now, let me keep going here before we get too lost. Let's start with this scholar's ignorance, point A there on your outline, the scholar's ignorance. In Aramaic, the Chaldeans say, O king, live forever. That's what you tell a tyrant if you want to be on good terms. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. These guys are trying to get around the king's challenge. Why? Because they know they can't meet it. But Nebuchadnezzar is not about to back down. Look at verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb. Oh, that's pleasant. And your houses will be made a rubbish heap. That's known as explaining it more clearly. All right? And by the way, this is not a king with idle threats. The prophet Jeremiah records that he roasted his officers when he didn't like what they did. He plucked out people's eyes. He's not a nice guy. He's, again, the Hitler of the day. Verse 6, if you declare the dream and its interpretation, however, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, he's not stupid. He's smart enough to know that these guys can say, well, tell us the dream, and then they'll tell the interpretation. They'll get together, make sure everyone's on the same page. They all have the same interpretation. He's no fool. He's no idiot. So he wants both. Now, it doesn't seem that the crime would fit the punishment. This would be like the President of the United States saying, I'm going to kill every member of Congress, and then I'm going to take bulldozers and run over your houses. So why does he deal with these people so harshly? Well, some scholars would say, well, just simply because uh, he doesn't like some of the leaders in the kingdom that he inherited, and so he wants to get rid of them, and now he has an excuse. Now, from what we just read in 519, and as we will see in the book, if Nebuchadnezzar wants to get rid of someone, he can get rid of anyone. All he has to do is speak the word. The law of the Medes and the Persians had not yet been developed. He can do whatever he wants. He is a total despot. He is a wicked, vicious dictator. I think there's another reason. Remember, he's come into the kingdom. He's inherited his daddy's advisors. And he wants to see what they're made of. He wants to see if these guys really are frauds and con men or if they can do what they claim to do. And so 
They come unglued. Look at verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm. He's saying, you're stalling, you're trying to buy time. Look at verse 9. He's very clear. He says that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. He's using one to qualify the other. And you couple that with the fact that it's so troubling for him at night. It wakes him up. He's going to deal with these guys very harshly. But these experts, they're at a total loss. And I suppose they are no different from the experts in our day. The intellects of our day say they have the answers to life. They can tell you how to feed and please all of your lusts and passions, but they cannot tell you how to deal with the resulting problem of guilt. They can uh, solve the most intense mathematical equations and synthesize all the chemical compounds in this world. But these people cannot tell you how to fix a broken heart. They can tell you how to raise your children. But they cannot build young men and women into people of character. They have information. But they do not have revelation. And Daniel is distinct. His three friends are distinct because they have the revelation of God in Scripture. And so do we. We have before us the Holy Scripture. So there's their ignorance. Secondly, look at their arrogance, the scholars' arrogance. We read here now in verses 10 and 11. Let me read it, then we'll go back and pick it apart a little bit. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. They're right about that. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. I mean, you talk about sheer arrogance. They basically say, king, if we don't know the answer, then nobody knows the answer. They think that wisdom begins and ends with them. But there was a man in the kingdom by the name of Daniel. And it didn't originate with him. We will see it originated with God. But they don't like Daniel. They hate Daniel. They hate his religion, as we're going to see, because they hate Jewish people. And throughout the history of the Jewish people, they are the most despised people on the face of the earth. There is no people in the history of humanity that have had more attacks and more hatred against them than the Jewish people. And it's going to get worse because we will see not just in the prophet Daniel, but in the revelation given to John, that all the nations of the world are going to come against Israel. And so these arrogant men dogmatically say, there's not a man on earth who can declare such a thing. They're saying, listen, king, if a magician and an astrologer and a Chaldean can't answer it, then nobody can answer it. And the intellects of our day, they, they think they have the answers to questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? Well, you know, you're, you're a piece of 
cosmic dust out of the universe. Where did I come from? You know, out of the glue, into the zoo, that became you. That's what they tell us. They say we originated from monkeys. That's what they teach our kids, and we wonder why they want to live like animals. Where am I heading back? Well, in the end, you know, you're going to end back into that big energy source we call the universe. Sheer ignorance, just like these men are ignorant. But when a person is born again, God the Holy Spirit comes to inhabit them. And Paul says to the Corinthians, they have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means they have a new capacity to think their thoughts after God's thought. doesn't mean they'll always think right. And so we're called to renew our minds, to grow in our knowledge of the Holy Scripture. But we now have a new ability that we didn't have before we met the living God. And so God tells us, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, as you search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes understanding and knowledge. I took a course as a freshman at Boston College. It was called the History of Western Civilization. We studied every major philosopher from Aristotle to the present. Two semesters of that gibberish. And it was taught by a Jesuit priest. You know, every Jesuit, of which the Pope is one, has a minimum of 17 years of formal schooling after high school before they come into this position and title called a Jesuit. This guy had more than that. In fact, he had three earned doctorates. He had a doctor of jurisprudence. A lawyer. He had a doctor of philosophy and he also had a doctor of dental surgery, three doctorates of sorts. And he was considered one of the brightest men on the East Coast. But as I listened to him as a new believer, I realized that the janitor that I became friends with in that building, who was a born again Christian, had more insight to life than this man with three doctorates. And if you're born again and you are learning the Word of God and your mind is being renewed, then you'll have God's answers. Jesus said in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you've revealed them to infants, to babes. Some things only come by divine illumination and that illumination is found in this book. But these professionals say, nobody can ask what you ask, King Only the gods could tell them that. It's an amazing admission here in verse 11. The thing that the king demands is difficult. But these are guys who say they interface with the gods, but they admit their own failure. And that's what makes Daniel so distinct. And that's what can make you so distinct. Now, I'm not saying that what Oprah and the Mormon cult and others are saying that you need to get in touch with the God within you. It is true, the Bible says you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. You become partakers of the divine nature. But you don't become some little God as in Mormonism. You don't get in touch with the God within you as Oprah says. 
You get in touch with the God of heaven as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you will help you. He's called our helper to illumine the truth. You don't get revelation. Revelation is found in Scripture. But God will give you illumination. He will help you to understand the revelation that he has given. But here in verse 11, these wise men admit their fakes. Verse 12, the king, of course, is furious. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And as soon as the decree is signed, off goes Arioch, the head of this detail, to go after the wise men. That brings us to the third part. Beyond the king and his distress, the scholars in their dilemma, we now come to the prophet and his desire, the prophet and his desire. Now, this final section that we're going to look at today divides into four parts. And as you study the Bible, one of the things you want to look for is for words that repeat themselves. And God naturally unfolds it in four acts, so to speak, with the word then. I have it circled in my Bible, the word then. It appears four times in the text, and I want you to circle it in your Bible. The first one comes in verse 14. The second then comes in verse 17. The third comes in verse 18. And then the final then comes, of course, at the start of verse 25. So we begin now with the king's problem. When Arioch, the royal executioner, comes and finds Daniel, notice how Daniel responds. He's very calm. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. By the way, if you really know what you are like, you'll know when a crisis comes into your life. And while it is true that courage is often developed in the midst of a crisis, We'll never be calm in the midst of a crisis if we've not prepared ourselves for calamities. And the only way to prepare yourself is to do it the way this man did, by knowing God's Word. With discretion, with discernment, he just calmly asked Arioch, for what reason is the decree so urgent? Now, we've already seen that God has given Daniel favor. We saw it in the first chapter with Asphenes, when he wants his diet adjusted. And he obviously has the same kind of favor with Arioch, because Arioch doesn't just come in with the sword and say, there's Daniel, there's his three, get them all, kill them. He comes in, he tells them the decree. Verse 16, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, evidently, he not only had Arioch's respect, but he had the king's respect. We read that in chapter 1. He looked at Daniel and his group of friends, and he said, we can't produce anyone like them in our kingdom. These guys are 10 times better than anything we can come up with. And so the king listens to Daniel, not to mention he doesn't have some excuse, well, tell me the dream and I'll tell you. No, he says, king, just give me a little time. And the king basically says, you've got some time, Daniel. Which brings us to Daniel's prayer beginning now in verse 17. The second then, circle it. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. He basically says, guys, we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight. I mean a serious one. (laughs) He informed them, verse 18, 
so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So his first reaction is to go to God in prayer. Let us go to God in prayer. Let us seek compassion from the God of heaven. He's asking for God's mercy. And the New Testament compels us to do the same. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we can do one of two things when trouble comes to our life. We can panic, or like Daniel, we can pray to the God of heaven. And this is really neat what he does, and in many ways a rebuke. Because many times when we come into a real difficulty, you know, we read a text like this, but tomorrow the bottom falls out, or we come into some misfortune or setback or reversal, and we go to our friends and we tell them and we speak to our wife, but the last person we go to is God. The first thing he does is he goes to the God of heaven. He doesn't look to the stars like the astrologers. He looks to the God who made the stars. He's seeking the Lord God, and he knows that if he does not lift up his voice to God, where God gives him an answer, then he will not have a voice to lift up. And so he's seeking the Lord. Now, remember who these guys are. They're just youths. They're like 17, 18 years old. But they have power in prayer. How are they so bold in prayer? Because they have great faith. Where do they get great faith? From the Word of God. We saw that in the first chapter. These were men who knew what Torah said, and they're committed to doing what God says. Prayer is nothing if it's not done in faith. You must pray in faith, and faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And you may be a teenager here today, but you can have power with God. Listen, some of the greatest revivals in the history of America were started by teenagers. Young people who got before God and sought the living God and He used them in a mighty way. Daniel 1.17, put this request in perspective. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. See, God had given Daniel a gift. He had a gift by which through visions and dreams he could understand life. Now, you have a gift. If you've been saved the day God saved you, He gave you a spiritual gift. Everyone in this room who's born again has a spiritual gift. You may not know what it is, just like when you hold a newborn baby, you may not know what his natural talents are. Whether he's going to be a singer or a poet or an athlete, you don't know until he grows. When you get a spiritual gift distinct from a natural talent and you begin to grow, then that gift manifests itself. And as we begin to discover our gifts, sometimes we, we say, oh God, please use me. I need your help. Please help me, oh God. And God blesses. And then after a while, we see success. And we rest in our success and we rest in our own ability, but not Daniel. He had already had, they're not, we're not told what they are, visions and dreams. But again, he's seeking the God of heaven, which brings us to Daniel's praise. The third then. Daniel's praise. The answer comes during the night. So before rushing off into the presence of the king, once he gets the answer, he spends time in the presence of God. Look at verse 19. Then, then, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. 
Now remember, visions are done while you are awake, but it's like you're asleep. Dreams in the Bible are done when you are asleep. This happened at night, but he was awake, but it was like he was asleep. In either case, then Daniel did what? Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So when God reveals the dream to Daniel, he doesn't rush into the king's palace and say, hey, king, let me tell you. No, he lingers in the presence of God and he goes into this praise session and he praises God in seven ways. It's a sermon itself. Verse 20, he blesses God saying, for wisdom and power belong to him. I mean, after all, he is the God of heaven, the all-powerful one to whom Daniel is praying. Second, he declares in verse 21, it is he who changes the times and the epics. Third, in verse 21, he removes kings and establishes kings. We're going to see that in terms of the meaning of the vision that is about to take place. We're going to see God establishing times and epics, raising up kings and taking kings down. Um, fourth, Daniel praises God in verse 21. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God doesn't give wisdom and knowledge to just anyone but to people whom he deems to be wise and understanding. Fifth, he blesses God in verse 22, stating, he reveals the profound and hidden things. And by the way, God still wants to do that for you today. He wants to be your teacher. He wants to be your helper as you study the Word of God. Six, in verse 22, he praises God because he knows what is in the darkness and the light seventh dwelleth with him. Light and darker, light to him, the Bible says. What a model for us. When he gets the answer, he blesses the living God. He says, God, I just want to praise you. I just want to bless you for what you've just shown me. And by the way, if you study the pronouns very, very carefully here, he refers to the Lord God 13 times, and he refers to himself and his friends five times, but even those five times is in the context of towards the living God. It's all God-centered. It's all upward. What an incredibly mature person. What an incredibly outstanding young person being 17 or 18 years of age. I want to be like Daniel. I want to be a truly thankful person because God knows by nature that none of us are. Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. I want to be like the one leper who turned back and fell on his face and praised God. And so he asked God to intervene and God intervened and he blessed the living God. Maybe we should have a Wednesday night prayer meeting where we don't ask God for a single thing but we just thank him and praise him for what he has done. And by the way, the two are inseparable in the Bible. We like to have our nice little categories, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You don't find those in the scripture. Praise and thanksgiving are interwoven in the word of God all the way through the Psalms, which is why the writer of the Hebrews says, through him then let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. How? That is through the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Prayer without praise is nothing short of ingratitude. 
Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch. Remember, he's the supervisor whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now keep in mind, this is Daniel's initiative to go to Antioch, which brings us to the final section, Daniel's proclamation. I'm done in three minutes. Stay with me. Verse 25, then, circle it, then Arioch hardly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Will you listen to this fellow, Arioch? I have found a man as if this were Arioch's heroics. I mean, he'd make a good politician. He should run for governor. He's greedy. No doubt wants some of the reward that Nebuchadnezzar has promised in verse 6. He wants to take credit, but Nebuchadnezzar's not stupid. He recognizes Daniel and his friends as men of integrity and follow very carefully when Daniel tells how it all took place. The king, verse 26, said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Now, please notice how he's careful to give God all the glory. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. And I'm sure these guys are probably all standing around in the back row. He's basically saying, look, your majesty, you've been looking in all the wrong places. You've been looking to astrologers and wise men and conjurers. You've been looking below. You need to look above. Verse 28, however... There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. And He gives us a sneak preview into our next session that you do not want to miss. He's going to take us all the way from Nebuchadnezzar to the Antichrist. But as for me, verse 30, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now, several applications shout to me off this page of Scripture. Number one, I learned that when we contribute to the work of God with our time, talents, and treasure, that God alone deserves all the honor and glory for what has been accomplished. Daniel has one concern, that God's name be lifted up. Now, obviously, you read these first two chapters and you recognize this is an intelligent kid. He's a bright teenager. He's got a good self-image. He's got an outgoing personality. And I mean, what a contrast, though, between him and Arioch, because when Daniel gets up, he doesn't take any bows like Arioch. He doesn't say, well, king, I've got this special ability, and let me tell you what I found out. No, 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 no. God did this. 
He understood what the prophet Isaiah had written a hundred years before. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with another. It's amazing what God can do through a man, through a woman, through a teenager who is willing to give God the credit. Have you learned the truth of giving God honor? Second, I learned from this passage that God empowers the gifts He has given His people through prayer. Now, we learn that God is sovereign in this book, but we also learn that God unleashes His sovereignty and His miraculous power through prayer. And sometimes as Christians, we go to extremes. We either emphasize God's sovereignty to the neglect of man's responsibility, or we emphasize human responsibility to the neglect of God's empowerment. When we pray, you are making a difference. When you pray in faith, when you align yourself with God's power, seeking God's blessing. Daniel doesn't come into the king's throne room enamored with himself. He comes into the throne room of the king and he says, there is a God in heaven. And some of us will not be there until God breaks us. And when the bottom falls out of our life, after years of foolishness, trying to pull this thing off we call the Christian life on our own. And then God will break us and we recognize there is a God in heaven. You have problems. There is a God in heaven. You have some dilemma you're facing today and you think it's absolutely hopeless. There is a God in heaven. You have a wayward child. There is a God in heaven. You have some financial turn back. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who wants to meet you, but you must meet Him. And it starts with the one that Daniel is going to preach to us about. Daniel is going to preach to us about Messiah who is to come. But he will show us so clearly in one of the most remarkable prophecies in all the Bible that Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus. And if you will come to him today, he will receive you. Now, our Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to be a church of Daniels, men and women who seek to honor you above all else, men and women who do not look to our own strength and resources and talents and skills and abilities, but to you and you alone. Thank you, our Father, that there may be some here today who are listening who have never met you. They've never, in the first sense, known you in a personal, life-changing, born-again way. And it's because they've never trusted that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. Thank you that you can say today is the day to be saved. Thank you that your word teaches that salvation is not a reward given to the righteous. It is a gift given to those who are guilty. To those who will come and say in simple faith on the basis of the cross. On the basis of the one who died in our place who was raised for us that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Have you ever done that? You can come to Him today if you will come like a child. 
if you admit your bankruptcy, that you cannot be your own Savior. If you will ask Jesus to save you, He'll do it right now and forever. Why don't you say there in your heart, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, we look at our world and it is such a mess. We look at our nation and it is disintegrating before our eyes. But we thank you there is a God in heaven. We thank you that you reign supreme, that you know what you are about, that you are going to use even the Gentile nations of this world in all of our arrogance and disobedience and rebellion to bring your Son from heaven. And we look forward to that day, Lord Jesus. Even so, come. We ask in your name. Amen.